Our featured BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders for this episode are the American Diabetes Association, AMREF Health Africa, Big Life Foundation USA. You can find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders at give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. Well, we're in the holiday season. Uh, When you hear this, it'll probably be the day after Christmas. When we think about Christmas, it's impossible to not think about young people and children. Many of us have had lives during the holidays that are bright, that are filled with gifts, that are also very moving for us and exciting for us. It's a time for us to be around family and feel the warmth and the love that comes from that. And so we always look forward to this time of year. Yet we also know that the joy that comes from the holiday season isn't necessarily available to all. And there are people who are working to make sure that it's available to more of the young people who may be missing out on that joy. And we think of different types of situations that people can find themselves in during the holidays. The one that comes to my mind this time of year are those who are living in foster care situations. And I go back to my brother and his wife, Al and Lisa. They were really drawn to young people who didn't have parents. Their parents may have been alive, but they weren't in a position to actually raise them. And my brother and his wife, Lisa, they literally fostered five children for a while and then serially began to adopt these young people. And so at one point in their lives, they had five young people born of the same mother, believe it or not, living with them first as foster care children and then as adoptees. And they had so much joy from the experience that they had raising these young people. And I know that the young people's lives were enriched because of the experience that my brother and his wife, Lisa, gave to them and the love that they received as a result. Well, that isn't always the case. While there are many great foster 
families out there, very many great foster parents who sacrifice and do great things for their young people that they're trying to raise and give them great Christmas experiences. We also know that it doesn't happen that way for for every young person. Some of them are bounced from one foster care family to another. Some of them hope to get adopted and they never are. Many of them long to see their birth parents and never do. And their experience is less than what we want it to be for young people. And as a result of that, their lives going forward are filled with challenges that stem back from the lack of love and connection and family that they felt when they were young. Well, today, as I mentioned, I wanted to to raise this issue and to talk with me about it is someone who spends her life working on behalf of those who are finding themselves in foster care. And also those who, frankly, when they're hit 18, they're asked to leave a foster situation and they don't really have what it takes to make it at 18 years old with very little support. But the person I'm going to talk to and I want to introduce you to is Jennifer Rodriguez, who is the executive director of the Youth Law Center out in Palo Alto. And Jennifer has been doing this, well, she'll tell you how long, I think it's certainly more than uh, 15 years or so she's been working at this. But she's also a foster child herself. Jennifer grew up in a foster situation. And how wonderful is it for someone who experienced foster family herself to actually now spend her life working on behalf of other foster children so that their experience can be what it needs to be so that they can thrive as citizens, as employees, and as happy and as connected people. So, Jennifer, I just want to welcome you first to the Heart of Giving podcast. And it's just terrific that you have given us some time to to talk with you about the work that you're doing and what we can all do also to assist. So tell us about a little bit first, Jennifer, about you. I want to talk about you and what got you connected and how you were able to fortuitously not only be a foster care, but then find a way to work on behalf of foster children. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me today, Art. And actually, an even bigger thanks for thinking of children and youth who are in foster care, who have experienced foster care during this time of the year. And then the biggest thank you for recognizing both the power of love and connection as sort of the most important force for these children, and also the lack of it as the force that creates the biggest challenges for these young people. I have to say that in the work that I do, that power for good or when it's lacking for as a source of trauma and instability throughout a young person's life and well into adulthood is often overlooked. Um, And I have to think that's because you've seen your brother and his wife sort of changing the trajectory of the young people's life that they loved. So Jennifer, tell us about the work that you do at the Youth Law Center. 
Absolutely. So the Youth Law Center is a national legal advocacy organization. We are based in San Francisco and we do work across the United States. And our focus is on using the law as a tool to both change the systems that are caring for young people in foster care in the juvenile justice system, but perhaps more importantly, also using the law to build the power of young people who are impacted by those systems to build something better and to really build a future that is one in which they can thrive. And so our work spans everything from stopping harm to children in the systems that are supposed to be caring for them. When the Youth Law Center originally started its work over 40 years ago, our sole focus was getting children out of adult jails. And we moved quickly into conditions for children who were incarcerated, which led us right to foster care because our data, and we now have data that shows that approximately 90% of young people who are in the juvenile justice system actually had a touch with the child welfare system or came directly from foster care into the juvenile justice system. So this population of youth is often one in the same. And so we started working on stopping harm in foster care as well, stopping young people from spending their childhoods growing up in institutions, dealing with abuse and neglect in those systems. But then moved into what I think is actually the most exciting and hopeful piece part of our work, which is reimagining how those systems can operate to actually give youth the life that they deserve to have. And so building systems that support young people's relationships, their connections, ensure that they have the opportunities that they need to thrive, and make sure that those youth can be the happy, healthy, thriving 40-year-olds at some point that are going to really help lift their own communities and make sure that their talents are a part of our social landscape. Jennifer, what's the data tell us about young people in foster care and leaving the system? We have a lot of data that paints a picture that creates some urgency, I think, for all of us. And so we know that Foster care is not a system that impacts all children equally, that Black and Native American children are disproportionately represented in foster care, and Latino children are represented at about the rate in the population, which means that there are many Latino children who are in foster care. And we also know that Black and brown children in our systems have a different experience than white children do often. We see children of color having many more placements. We see a lower frequency of those children being able to return to their own birth natural family. And we see less children ending up in family settings and more children of color ending up in institutional or group care settings. Um, We see lower rates of children being adopted by families if they're children of color. So there's an incredible amount of work that we have to do to make sure that our systems are equitable. And we also know that for those young people who are forced to exit foster care, um, it used to be the age of 18, it's now the age of 21. But honestly, that number doesn't make that much of a difference between 18 and 21. We now have so much more information and data about brain development. And we know that the period of young adulthood has now extended out to 26. 
So 18 to 21 years old is definitely still the new sort of teenage young adult period. And for those youth who are exiting the system, we see very high rates of homelessness. We see very low rates of enrollment in post-secondary education, of full-time employment that allows youth to support their own families. We see unacceptable rates of young people not receiving the supports that are necessary to parent their own children. Many of our youth are expecting or parenting by the time they're 21 years old, and too many of those young people, the cycle continues and foster care continues to be involved in their children's life. And We actually see so many young people exiting the system with physical health conditions and mental health conditions that the American Academy of Pediatrics has declared all children in foster care, children and youth in foster care as a population with special health needs. So in my mind, this is a group of of children who is the most vulnerable in our society and a group of young people who we owe a response with the, the greatest urgency to. What's the connection, Jennifer, between exiting foster care and juvenile justice systems? So by the time young people exit foster care, whether that's 18 or 21 or some number in between that, when they're no longer eligible for foster care payments, if they have trouble with the law, they're actually entering the adult criminal system not the juvenile justice system. And what we don't have exact data on that because we don't have the systems in place to really track once youth exit the system, if they move into the adult criminal system. But when there have been research studies that have focused over the years on asking adults who are incarcerated whether they have foster care experiences, the percentages are very high. So some studies have found it's a quarter of folks who are incarcerated as an adult who had experience of being in foster care. Others have found upwards of half. Um, And those numbers are very similar to the numbers that have been found when folks interviewed people who are unhoused, adults who are unhoused. There is a very high number of those adults who came sort of on a pipeline directly from foster care. Jennifer, yet we know too that foster care seems to be the best alternative we have for young people who either don't have parents alive, let's start with that, or whose parents aren't really in a position where the state feels comfortable allowing them to raise those children. This is what we have. And so we don't really have the good sense to say, let's do away with it. That wouldn't make sense. But we do need to make sure that we're doing everything we can to make it work well for all kids. And just like my brother and his wife, there's some great foster parents out there, right? And they do more than anybody would expect. They love those kids like they're their own because they are their own. They're just not biologically their own. But when the outcomes aren't what we want them to be, something has to be done. So so, what are some of the challenges that we find in foster care that we need to address? This is a great question. I think that there has been a growing movement over the past decade to acknowledge the harm that foster care, which is substandard, 
inflicts on children, youth, and their families, particularly children and youth of color. And a lot of that comes from folks hearing about when foster care doesn't actually work and the problems in the system. I think that people have become hopeless about the idea of foster care actually working as a positive intervention in young people's lives and also their longing to build something else in our community. And I think we all are in a perfect world. We actually would have a community where neighbors showed up for each other, where folks were not isolated, where they were connected to family, and we would never need a government system to intervene when children could not be cared for by their own parents. We're not in that perfect world yet. So there are a population of young people where foster care is the only option that we currently have. And so I think that our work at the Youth Law Center is really looking at that population of children and youth who are growing up in this system and figuring out how to make foster care a positive intervention. It doesn't actually have to be an approach that causes additional trauma, additional loss. And you hit the nail right on the head because the key to how we can do that is what your brother and his wife are doing. The most important intervention that we have in foster care and way to improve it is by making the system understand that the volunteers who are fostering young people, and those include the relatives and kin of the child who are stepping up to take their own relative into their home, and other people who are loving those children as if they were blood, but are not blood related, that they are treated as if they are respected, valued partners, that they are acknowledged as being the most powerful force. They are key to children, everything from children learning literacy and how to read to children being able to regulate their emotions in a classroom, to being able to make a healthy transition to adulthood and plan to learning about post-secondary education, to being able to form friendships and healthy romantic relationships of their own at some point. They're key to absolutely everything. And that's something I say not just from my own experience and from listening to other young people. We actually have the scientific evidence that shows us that the loving, nurturing parenting that our resource parents, so kin and foster parents provide to children can actually change young children's biology in a period of about three months, can change their stress response system so they're equipped for the whole rest of their life to handle events that are difficult in a different way. So parenting is so powerful. Loving parenting is so powerful that we can literally create an entirely new stress response system for children in a very short period of time. So I think that that is the key to change in foster care is acknowledging, one, how important it is that every single child who's in foster care is receiving excellent, loving parenting every single day, and then realigning the system so that it is supporting that and recognizing that everything that the foster care system does is either working towards that goal or it's getting in the way. And there are so many of our policies and sort of everyday practices in the system that do one thing or the other. So everything from making sure that a foster parent, when a child first comes into their home, has the very basic information that will allow that child to feel safe and secure. What's that child's favorite food? What's their nighttime routine? 
to systems facilitating relationships between resource parents and birth families so that you're not ever severing or reducing the amount of relationships that a child has, but you're expanding. So that to me is a really important goal that foster care has, but often the system is sort of setting as its goal, not what you laid out at the beginning around love, connection, joy, opportunity, but rather, can we stop a child from being killed? Can we prevent further abuse or neglect? And you know, that's just depressing. As somebody who grew up in the system and now is a mother myself, my goals are never sort of to stop bad things from happening for, to my children as the number one priority, my, my goals are to make sure that they actually have joyful, fulfilling lives where they feel happy. That's what I want for, for all children who have to grow up in this system. And now it's time for our Giving Tips segment with Bennett Weiner, one of the world's most renowned experts on charity accountability and the COO of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance. So when you make a donation online, one of the things that we recommend is to keep in mind some cybersecurity tips to help protect your data and ensure that you're making transactions that are safe. So here are some thoughts to achieve that. One thing is be cautious about social media recommendations. If you have friends or family recommending certain groups, don't assume that they vetted them. Take the time to check out the charity on your own by going to the organization's website and seeing if they meet BBB standards by visiting give.org. Don't click the link. We get emails and messages all the time. Don't just click on any link indicating it's a charity appeal or QR code for that matter as well. Verify the source. Scammers might seek to misdirect you by sending you to a false page using a well-known charity name in order to steal your private data. So if you any question about whether you have an appropriate message, go directly to the charity's website on your own. Watch out for lookalike names. Look at the name carefully. There are many charity names that sound similar and alike, and sometimes it's because charities are raising money for the same cause, and other times there are questionable scammers out there that are trying to confuse you. So look at the name carefully to make sure the organization that you're considering is the one that you have in mind. And as far as your own cybersecurity, make sure that you're taking the time to change your passwords with some reasonable frequency. Don't let them linger for a long time. That's one of the best means of helping to protect your data and your resources online before you give. Jennifer, what about your own experience? Yeah, I mean, you you grew up in in the system and and here you are. Here I am. <laughs> Did you have to overcome or was it a situation where you were in a home or homes where people did care and support and take care of you and give you opportunities? Well, I started my advocacy as a teenager, young adult, because I wanted to make sure that no other children or youth had experiences like I had growing up. I'm sorry to hear that. I appreciate that. And in some ways, this work, though, is what gives meaning to all of those experiences and what lets me feel like I can repair the harm that I experience by making sure that others don't experience it. So 
my own experience was that I actually never had the opportunity to live in a family while I was in foster care. I was in group homes. I was in shelters. I was in psychiatric hospitals. By the time I was a teenager, I was in and out of juvenile hall as well. And so I think I kind of gave up hope that I would ever be in a family and that anybody would ever love me when I was probably 12 or 13 years old. And my goodness, it's really interesting because one of our, the Youth Law Center, a lot of our advocacy is done in partnership with developmental scientists and with other researchers. And one of our research partners talks about how important it is for young children who are in foster care that foster parents follow the child's need rather than follow the child's lead. Because for little ones who have been removed from their parents and placed in foster care, they have often learned that adults are not trustworthy to respond to their needs. So when they're hurt, when they're sad, when something is wrong, rather than reaching out to the foster parent, what they will do instead is they'll withdraw and they won't cry when they have a need. They'll just be very quiet. And the first time I heard that research, I remember thinking that teenagers in foster care, they exhibit the same behavior, but it's much less cute. <laughs> when teenagers sort of have a need to be loved and connected, to get a hug, to have somebody tell them that they matter, that their life matters, rather than withdrawing or not crying, often what you get is some cussing and door slamming and young people running away from home. That's certainly where I was by the time I was a teenager is I did not, I'd given up on a family. I didn't know how to ask to be loved because that just feels too depressing and scary when you have the system telling you you're not capable of, you know, you're not well enough. You're not whole enough for a family to love you and care for you. So I ended up not having a family and moving so frequently impacted every element of my childhood and my experience as a young adult. I ended up not graduating from high school, not being connected to a single adult when I turned 18. And so I exited foster care in the Bay Area to homelessness. I was unhoused for several months. I had no work experience. I had nobody who cared whether I was alive or dead. I just didn't know what I was going to do. And I honestly didn't care. I mean, I... Mm. For, for children, I think it takes an adult sort of having a vision and a dream for, for most young people. Some young people are exceptional and they carry their own sort of self-image of themselves as somebody who's lovable and powerful and can contribute to society without ever having that modeled for them by an adult. But for many of us, I think when we don't have adults who can play that role in our life and, and see, we internalize everything that the system tells us. And we see ourselves as a collection of labels and the worst things that either happened to us or that we did on the absolute worst days of our life. And so sort of lose hope in any kind of future at all, or feel like the future just happens to us. Like we have no power to actually create the life that we want for ourselves, the lives that we want for other peers. So when I started my advocacy work, I actually started when I learned about a program that was serving young adults who had formerly been in foster care and teaching them life skills. 
And I had hidden the fact that I had been in foster care after I exited. I left and went to San Jose Job Corps where I got a GED and I got vocational training and was housed and received medical care and then went to work actually at the Fairmont Hotel in in San Jose. That was my job placement. I worked in room service there. And it took me a couple of years to get stable enough to start community college. And when I did, I just didn't want anybody to know that I had had these experiences. I felt so broken and different from everybody else. So I was working as a work-study student at the community college, and I saw this flyer pass my desk for a ceremony celebrating other young people who had been in foster care who were graduating from this life skills program. And I thought, wow, there's other young people that are like me who are at this community college. And so I attended that graduation, talked to some of the adults who were there who asked me, hey, have you ever considered getting into advocacy? And so that was where my pathway started. Okay, so hold on a minute. So we're going to talk about the advocacy piece in a minute. But I want to know, what was it that made you decide you were going to step into that job core? Mm. Because you were dealing with some things, and yet you somehow decided, I don't know, was it counseling? Was it friends? I mean, what was it that you woke up one day and said, I need to go do this job core? Honestly, I wish I could tell you that it was because I had some grand vision or motivation or or somebody was supporting me, but it actually was really desperation. Mm-hmm. I left my last group home, was living on the street, couch surfing for a little bit. And I had actually entered foster care from being on the street. And so I was in a really, really low place because I think I had told myself all through foster care, I'm experiencing all this trauma now, living in these facilities with people who don't care about me and who are making my life really difficult. Once I exited, my life was in my own hands and I was right back where I started. And so that Mm. felt so desperate. The one thing I had going for me, I I tell people all the time, my coping skill is that I'm a reader. And so me and the library Mm. were really good friends. The library was my safe place. I would go to the library and hang out and read everything under the sun sometimes all day because I didn't have any other place to be. And once I hit the point where it just wasn't safe for me to be on the street anymore as an 18-year-old you know, young woman, I went and I knew exactly where the resource part of the library was. There was a big book there that had resources for folks who were homeless. And I opened it, read a little description of Job Corps, and the description said, we give you housing, we give you money. And that was all I cared about. Actually, I didn't care about the vocational training. I didn't care about getting my GED. So I had to show up to a women in community service office to apply to get into Job Corps. And I had lived in so many places that you know, they require you to say, what are all the, the places you've lived, the addresses that you've been for the last three years? I couldn't remember. I only remembered my last placement, my last group home. Wow. I gave them that address and the very amazing, fortunate way that the universe shined upon me was that it took them a long time. I don't even remember how long, but it was at least weeks. It might've been months to start tracing 
my addresses from going back to that group home. And so I didn't have any other place to be. And so all day I'd stay at the admission and community service office and I would file their papers and answer their phones and run errands for them and get coffee. And so the folks, the folks there got to know me. I had a relationship with them. And Job Corps has a zero tolerance policy, or they did have a zero tolerance policy. So they don't allow folks in who had a criminal record. They didn't allow people in who were on psychotropic medication and had a mental health condition. Um, they didn't allow people in who had had experience with substance abuse. Uh, you know, I had all of the, all of the above. That's a lot of didn'ts. That's a lot of didn'ts. I had all of the above. And when the, per- the admission counselor who was handling my application started to have the records trickle in to see that Jennifer's been arrested. She's been in juvenile hall. She's in her placements. They had her on an array of psychotropic medications. She was like, you know what? I'm not going to ask for any more records. We're going to say we couldn't find them. I'm letting you in. I'm just admitting you. So it was one person doing more. And I'll tell you, it was life-changing for me to go into Job Corps because when I entered, I had to get my GED. It's a requirement for all young people that they have a high school diploma or equivalent. And so they had me take GED readiness tests. And what Job Corps does is they take the folks who score the highest in each of the GED readiness sort of subject areas. They put people into something called the Academic Olympics. And so because I was a reader, I failed sort of readiness on math and science and any of those things. I had never had regular math. I was a special education student. So it was in pull-out classrooms, continuation schools, my whole high school career just about. But I was a reader. So I knew all of the words, all of the vocabulary. I knew the spelling. And so suddenly I was smart, Jennifer. I wasn't like special education, Jennifer, dropout, Jennifer. I was none of those. And so I won the Academic Olympics at my job course site. I competed regionally, competed in Arizona, won against them. And it defined my my image of myself. But this is what I'm talking about. It was the adults there who saw something different. And when they saw that with me and mirrored it, mirrored it to me, I was able to live up to that and totally change who I was, which then gave me the gumption to think, you know, actually, maybe I could go at some point to community college. And I went to community college. I had a wonderful biology teacher. I was trying to do the shortest program possible, which was a medical assisting program. And so I took biology. I had this amazing teacher who mentored me and who talked to me into by gradually raising the bar if you're going to do a medical assisting program, why don't you do an LVN program? If you're going to do an LVN program, why don't you do an RN program? And pretty soon she had me thinking I was going to medical school, at which point I was like, wait a second, this isn't actually what I want to do. But if I think I can be a doctor, I can be anything I want to be. And so I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. And that was what her sort of that relationship and her going above and beyond is what powered my ambition to want to transfer them to UC Davis and go to law school at UC Davis and start my advocacy career. So from a personal level, I just feel like I have lived the power of adults stepping in and standing in. And whenever I work now with young people, I think, you know, that kind of mentoring experience is so powerful. But what if I had had a mom You know, what if I had had an adult who loved me? Maybe there's able to make an impact and help solve problems in the world in even a greater way than I currently am. 
Well, Jennifer, first of all, let me just tell you what an amazing story that is. And it's, it's actually a story of triumph, you know, if you, if you want to look at it that way. Most people have something in their lives that sort of define who they become. Either we have challenges that sink us, or we have opportunities or challenges that drive us forward. And I'm so grateful, and I know you are too, that you were able to persevere and then begin to think about how you could serve others so that their experiences could be better than yours at that age. And if there's anything that describes the purpose of this podcast, it's that. It's how people somehow find events or circumstances in their lives that lead them to want to give back to others. And in your case, even demonstrate through this podcast to others that we all have something to contribute. We all have something to contribute. And you are doing that. And so I can't imagine anyone hearing this story, hearing your story, hearing what you're doing, that wouldn't at least ask the question, am I doing enough? What can I do? Because I look at you and I listen to your story. And I also know that you are where you need to be. You are enriched, you know, and you are enriching the lives of others. You are full, it seems to me. Tell me about the joy that you get working on behalf of people who need you. You know, there is no greater gift to me. I I think all the time that if I was lucky enough to win the lottery tomorrow, that I would still want to do this work. It, it is truly, I'm a strong believer that our lives are about service and that's what brings happiness. And it's also what makes me feel powerful as an individual who has experienced a lot of time in my life where I've had no power. This idea that we can be a part of creating and building the future and the world that we want to live in, particularly in this time and moment when it does feel like there are so many things that just happen um, to us that we couldn't anticipate. I feel like I get a tremendous infusion of joy from knowing that I'm able to actively in my systems advocacy start the process of building the world that I want to live in and that I want for my own children and that I want for the children that I consider my siblings who are still in foster care and still in juvenile justice. That really makes it so that I I never want to quit, (laughs) no matter how discouraging it is. So I think that it is just truly an honor to do this work. And I have also grown so much through the work. As a lawyer, I tell folks all the time when I, you know, I've always thought about justice and what justice looks like. When I was a kid, it was in the system. I felt like justice was being free of adults who... I couldn't trust and who hurt me. And so, you know, I exercised that on my own plenty and ran from places and at some point started to reject adults 
being in my life when I was a young adult, teenager starting to do advocacy work, I thought about justice as like rights for youth, like all the things that we were entitled to because nobody else was going to give them to us. When I started as a lawyer, I was trained in law school that justice is a procedural thing. It's due process. It's making sure that we have notice, making sure that we have a forum that we could be heard where you can enforce enforce the rights, enforce the law. When I became a mom, my definition of justice really changed to making sure that every single child is loved. I mean, I just actually couldn't imagine until I held my baby in my arms and that baby is now 19, what it's like to really be loved and to feel like I felt like I could would die for my child. I had all of these dreams from day one about who he was going to be, dedicate so much of my, my mental and time outside of work to trying to figure out every single opportunity that's going to bring him and his sister kind of joy and help them discover who they were meant to be in the world. So whether that's been basketball or coding or theater or dance. I've sought out every one of those opportunities because I want to see my kids happy and feeling like they belong in the world, like they have something to offer and give. That's where I am now. I don't know if that will change over the course of my advocacy career, but I'm not settling at this point for anything less than the definition of justice for children being loved. I just feel like there's not a moment that children can afford to not be loved and cared for. We think they can hold. They can hold for a period of time while while we in the system sort of do our work and figure out how to get them into a setting they love. It's not possible for them. It's just like air or water. And that's the real work. And I appreciate what you say about sort of thinking where everyone has a role, because for these children, it depends on every single person in the community whether that role is a small role, like that admissions counselor at at Job Corps did for me with allowing me to work for free in the office and and trusting me to go get get the coffee and to take her money (laughs) to to go pick up coffee for folks or, or the teacher who mentored me at school. It really takes everyone, all the people in the community who probably support your brother and his wife in their job as foster parents. They may not be the fosters, but they may be keeping the children when they need a parent break and go on an anniversary trip or bringing food over when they're not feeling so well or somebody in the home is sick or being a shoulder to cry on. I mean, this is really a community effort. And it's the kind of thing that you want some way to change the world and to address the things that are are happening out there that don't feel good. So often it feels overwhelming to identify where to start or what to do, but this is something so, so concrete that you can do. And there's just nothing that matters more. Jennifer, real quick, because we're going to have to end the podcast soon, but I just wanted to know one or two programs we're running right now at the Youth Law Center that we ought to know about and what do you hope to achieve with those programs? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's hard to narrow down to one or two, but if anybody's interested, sign up for our mailing list and you'll learn about all of them. But I'll tell you some of the ones that I'm most excited about right now is we have work that we have been doing over the last couple of years with the Institute for the Future and a group of advocates who are young people who have grown up in foster care 
where we are working together to reimagine the kind of supports that young people need to thrive in a world that has drastically changed over the last decade. Our, our goal is to get them ready to thrive in 2035. And so we're thinking about how can we prepare young people not just to be digitally literate, but actually to harness all of the technology to build the life that they want, to build the online presence that might be a source of economic stability for themselves in a world where their first boss may be an algorithm, to be able to navigate that successfully, to be prepared for a future where we may have increasing social volatility that impacts them, where they may be disrupted and displaced due to climate disasters, and to really think about how to make sure that they are connected as young adults. So frequently, the approach that we take is around helping youth be independent when, as you so beautifully opened with saying, the approach really has to be how the opposite, how to make sure that they are interconnected, that they are held by folks who will love them and who will be for them. We heard from way too many young people during the pandemic that they did not have a single adult that they could reach out to. For, they were lonely, they were isolated, they lacked food, they didn't have anybody they could call and say, need housing. And that's just not acceptable. Uh, and nobody thrives under that circumstance. That's one program. Um, another example of a program is I talked a lot about this work to realign systems around the idea that the primary goal of foster care has to make sure to be to make sure that every child every day receives excellent loving parenting. Whether they're in foster care for a day, a month, a year, we're doing that work in our quality parenting initiative where we're working with jurisdictions across the country to change their policies, to change their practices, to change their agency culture. Um, so we're working in about 10 states, 80 jurisdictions across the country. We're investing in the leadership of local youth, birth parents, foster parents, line workers to champion that those changes themselves so that they're long-term and sustainable. We are building up a, a third project is we're building up a community of student advocates who have experienced the juvenile justice system themselves to build programs at community colleges that provide the kind of supports that allowed me to be successful in community college and, and to build the life that I want. And so investing in their leadership as advocates. So those are just a few of the pieces of work that we're doing. And if you notice, we do a ton of work at the Youth Law Center around stopping bad things. But the things that we do that really excite me are around how, how we can rebuild systems to actually be systems that foster joy and opportunity and connection and relationships for, for our children and youth. Well, we're going to have to end it here, but I do want everyone listening to think about your year-end giving. I know a lot of people like to make their gifts at the end of the year. And what better place to put a few dollars, if you have it, than with the Youth Law Center and help Jennifer do all she's trying to do for kids who, for in many cases, no fault of their own, find themselves in a tough spot and need people to know that they care, that they love them. You can make that difference with a little support to Jennifer and the Youth Law Center. So uh, Jennifer, how would we do that? Is there a website or something people can go to to find out more and be on your newsletter, as you say, and maybe even support you? 
I would love that. And we can't do this work without the supportive community. And we would be so honored to have each of you as partners. So come to our website, www.ylc.org. You will find immediately, you'll, you'll reach a page that allows you to sign up for our newsletter, to sign up as a donor of and partner in our advocacy work, and really to be a key partner in making sure that we are building the joyful future that our children and youth deserve. Well, thank you. Well, you've been listening to Jennifer Rodriguez, who is the executive director of the Youth Law Center. And you've heard her amazing story and the story of the work that the organization is doing. And it's quite impressive. So do what you can. Now, for all of you who are listening to this podcast for the first time, understand that it is a weekly show. And so you should subscribe. Go to your favorite place to get your podcasts and like it so that you can get all the future episodes that come out so you can hear amazing stories of people like Jennifer. And if you want to support the podcast, you can do that as well, either as a sponsor or as a donor by going to give.org, G-I-V-E dot O-R-G. And we'll put that money to great use. And to all of you, I wish you the greatest of holiday season. I know now it's past Christmas and you're probably trying to figure out what to do with all the packages you had to unwrap, if you're lucky. And that's wonderful. But we want you to have a great new year as well. So we'll see you back here next week with our, it will be the first edition of the new year. Take care, everyone. See you soon. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.com dot p-o-d-b-e-a-n dot com subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms the thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests not those of the bbb wise giving alliance or program affiliates this podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved this podcast is protected by podbean's terms of service